0: Hey folks, and welcome to Typology, the show in which we explore the mystery of the human personality through the lens of the Enneagram. I'm Anthony Skinner, producer of the show. We've got another great guest for you today, Brian McLaren. He is an author, speaker, activist, and public theologian a former college English teacher and pastor. He works with people of all faiths. Brian is a faculty member of the Living School, which is a part of the Center for Action and Contemplation. He's appeared on many radio and TV broadcasts, including NPR, Larry King Live, Religion and Ethics, News Weekly and Nightline. He's also been covered in Time, where he was listed as one of America's 25 most influential evangelicals. He's also appeared in Christianity Today, Christian Century and the Washington Post and many other print media. We're happy to have Brian with us today, and Ian will tell you about some of his latest projects that he's involved in. So hey, let's get on with the program. That's it for me, Anthony Skinner. And now, here is the host of our show, Ian Cron.
1: Brian McLaren, welcome to Typology.
2: I'm happy to be with you, Ian. It's been a long time.
1: It has been a long time. I was thinking on my way into the studio today that uh, of two two things. One was when the the I the when we first met and then um, another incident uh, that happened between you and I that was life changing for me. Both of those were life changing events. You probably don't remember when we first met.
2: I I remember going to Israel, but I know that's no. not when we met. <laughs>
1: Oh, that's right. (laughs) All right, so it was 2001, uh, and I was sitting in a coffee shop in Old Greenwich, Connecticut, and I was reading a book, uh, and it was um, uh, A New Kind of Christian. Okay. And I had happened on that book after reading another book called The Post-Evangelical. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and I remember reading A New Kind of Christian, which was this book that you had written, and thinking to myself, oh my gosh, this guy is like describing in uncannily accurate terms my life right now. Mm-hmm. So being the somewhat assertive person that I am, I reached out to you. You were at a church in Maryland at the time. That's right. And you said, well, why don't you just come and spend a day with me? <laughs> And I drove down, and uh, and we hung out for an entire day together.
2: I remember that day. That's when we first met, yeah?
1: Yeah. Actually, I took a train, and you had to come pick me up at the train, now that I remember that. It's all coming yeah. clear to me now.
2: And I was I, so thrilled to find such a gifted musician. Uh, I have a new friend who was a gifted musician. That was – uh, I also remember that.
1: Yes. And then the other uh, – another big sort of watershed moment in my relationship with you came. I remember we were sitting – somewhere uh, in a restaurant, and I said to, you know, I've had this idea about a book for a long time. I had written no books. And um, I said, it's this book about St. Francis and how, you know, back then, I said, the kind of Christian everyone was trying to say they wanted to become— I said well they just want to be Saint Francis. I mean, you know. And 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 you said that's a great idea for a book. You need to write that book. <laughs> and that's what inspired me. Your encouragement actually is what inspired me to write Chasing Francis.
2: <laughs> that's great. Well, that was such a good book. I I was feeling pretty good today, but now I'm feeling way better.
1: <laughs> well, I mean that's in all honesty, it's in all honesty, I probably would not have written that book had not a author um, who I admired, um, encouraged me to write it and, and gave the idea a, uh, a thumbs up in terms of its potential.
2: Well, I, don't, uh, I don't know if I told you this at the time, but uh, I've read a lot of biographies. I love biographies, but I've read more biographies of uh, St. Francis than anyone else. So, uh, I, And my curiosity and interest uh, is as high as ever. You know, he's such a amazing, enigmatic, complex, and yet simple character. Oh um, man. And and just his role in history is so interesting and, and it just feels so bizarrely relevant to this moment. So,
1: Oh my gosh. Yeah. He's, he's this timeless, wild, um, quixotic. He's just a, a, a you know, um, you know, as as he's been called, the last Christian.
2: <laughs> yes, maybe the first and maybe the last.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean that's uh, that's Francis all in a nut. And of course, we spent what was it, ten days together in Israel.
2: Yes, that's right. My word, we, we've had so some we've we've, we've had, had some adventures. Some water has gone under the bridge for us. That's yeah. right. So it's good to be with you again.
1: It is well, Brian Enneagram. I know you've known the Enneagram for a long time. When did you first learn about the Enneagram?
2: I well, I don't know when I, I I heard about it, and then I just did a quick quick and dirty orient myself, and then uh, Suzanne Stabile, your uh, previous writing partner, uh, and I became friends, and I actually got to sit in on her uh, whole week long course that she did, and because we were teaching together at the same place, and so that was probably the week I felt like I went from being a kindergartner to at least a fourth grader. <laughs>
1: right. And you determined that you were an Enneagram four.
2: Yes. Uh, I'll tell you something interesting. Uh, uh, when I uh, first started exposing myself, this might just be absolutely typical of fours for all I know, but I really had a hard time because I felt like I had the weaknesses of every every different kind. <laughs>
0: yeah. And,
2: um, uh, but I was actually having dinner with Richard Rohr, telling him my uh, frustration. And as he listened, he said, you know, you sound to me like a four who flips back and forth between a three and a five wing. He said that happens sometimes. And Mm -hmm. that, as soon as he said that, I felt like that gave me permission to actually be, be a four or see, see myself that way. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You know that those wings are interesting because you know, they be, they're, they're really resource points, you know, um, there are points on the Enneagram where we can sort of tap into their strengths and potential weaknesses and, uh, you know, bring them back to the village of four, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, 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 and and put them to service. I think in my own life, I'm a four with a three wing and, um, but as I get older, definitely more a four with a five wing.
2: Well, Um, that, that's, I'd say that's very much how it is for me. I, um, my years as a pastor, uh, threeness was really, really necessary. I, I had a public role, and and I, I, I approached the, you know, I, I became a pastor in the '80s and and uh, '90s, and in that was a very success-oriented period for pastors, uh, and and so I, I really tapped into the three world then. But the part of me that wanted to be a writer, the part of me that, you know, I'd been a lit major, um, that, that part of me was always there. So, you know. <laughs>
1: yeah, I know how I was, in, I was a pastor in the 80s as well. And I think that's why you're that a new kind of Christian, you know, resonated so deeply with me was I was a four and I was in Greenwich, Connecticut, the, the epicenter of threes. And, yeah, that's um, right. <laughs> and and I was expending so many burning so many calories trying to act like a 3 all the time when I was a 4. Yes. You know? Yes. And I felt so disillusioned and disappointed and sort of a perpetual feeling that I was failing um that I was inauthentic because I was trying to you know, make it with these high flyer Wall Street types and get them to come to my church. I mean, you know, there was
2: all this yes, 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 yes
1: angst yes. all the time. And I was a, a literature major; it was an English literature major. I was, you know, drawn to the arts, not to business. I was, you know, it was right. this strange dance that, and of course, that was the era of, um, you know, the, you know, the. Bill Hybels and these other huge churches that were growing and, you know, comparing yourself to them and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It was a, yeah. it was an odd time. It was a very odd time Yeah, yeah. to
2: be a four. Yeah, that's right. And, and it's funny, isn't it? I mean, I, I don't know your particular philosophy on all this. I, I was kind of, I don't know if you've had much exposure to Jerome Lubby and his book on the Enneagram. But uh, he, uh, you know, one of the things he says is, look, all of when we're talking about these nine types, these are all capacities of the brain and uh, and and different individuals, but maybe different cultures, maybe different religions or denominations. They specialize, they lean. uh, There's a kind of standard of success where everybody wants to uh, play that role. And And uh, it's in our lifetime, you know, I think a lot of religion really worked well for sixes because it it catered toward things like fear and loyalty and being kind of a good soldier and uh, and so on. and then but then churches reached a a rough patch and some creativity was needed so four voices were needed and entrepreneurial entrepreneurship was needed so you know three voices came up uh uh and uh other times i'm sure eights you know make uh, everybody wants to line up uh behind uh some very powerful leader so uh uh, and of course, we maybe if we're Pentecostal, we especially like sevens, and we want to at right. least have some fun when we go to church. And uh, so you, you just see all these different uh, swings in the religious world. And in some ways, it's it, it makes perfect sense. It's it, different forms of our religion suppress different parts of us and and express different parts of us. And mm. and we're we're all we We all have the sense that whatever spirituality and religion are, they should be liberating, and they they should allow us to thrive and well in in Jesus' words have abundant life so
0: mm.
1: yes i've often you know I'm oftentimes trying to communicate to tell people that and I said this the other day at a, at a workshop, I said, you know um you know you are not your number mm. You know, and I think that's one of the misapplications that's and, right, that, exactly. that I see in the world around me now is, you know, you go on the Internet, or you go on Instagram, and there's a, there are now a million self-proclaimed Enneagram experts. And they, you know, oh, I'm a seven, or I'm a two, or I'm a three, and I understand yeah. the, the you know, what what's being expressed there. Yes. But unfortunately, yeah. what's not being said in, in the same breath is, no, actually... Um, This is a set of adaptive stratagems, ways of being in the world that I adopted as a little person to conform to what I thought others wanted me to be in order to get my needs met, you know? Yes. Um, And and of course, what it's talking about, and Richard and I had a conversation about this, is what the Enneagram reveals is not um, who you are, but who you aren't. You know, like uh, in the sense that your 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 core enneagram type is uh, describing in many ways your false self, not your true self, which is hidden beneath mm. it.
2: That's interesting. Yeah, and and uh, uh, you know, I I don't know how how much you've gotten into this, and I'm I'm not an expert, but I'm deeply curious uh, in, in all the neurology and brain research and so on. But I've been. Uh, intrigued by this idea of the modular brain. Apparently, you know, brain experts are saying that they can map out discrete modules of the brain. And uh, a lot of people right now are are using the number 52, 52 uh, empirically identifiable modules of the brain. And if you think about that, that, and, and those different modules combine into, you know, modules of modules and so on, and and some people yeah we can talk about the left brain and the right brain or we can talk about a three part brain system of the brain stem and the reptilian brain uh or the reptilian brain and the mammalian brain and the primate brain all these different ways to talk about how these modules work together but it just makes sense that we would develop habitual ways of negotiating these different modules um, and of course, as far as far as I know, nobody has any idea what consciousness is. But it seems to me to be some kind of emergent property from from having so many of these modules being in conversation with each other at the speed of light, virtually, or, or so much faster than we could ever be conscious of. I mean, it you just realize we are, and 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 that's why to have these nine types is a tool. Be but. The complexity of any one of us and the complexity of what's happening in, in, in the time I'm uttering this sentence is we'll never understand it as long as we live.
1: <laughs> no, no, no. And that's why I'm always, you know, uh, you know, as you know, there's this Enneagram fever thing, you know, and I which both, you know, delights and troubles me, you know. Yeah. Um And I think. Uh, I'm, I'm always in favor of people who have an interest in self-knowledge and, and wanting to learn to move more skillfully through the world. I'm all in favor of that. Um, I don't like it when it becomes reductive and uh, silly, simplistic, uh, if not cartoonish, you know, kinds of representations. That's not what the Enneagram was designed for. And I, 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 I get so disheartened sometimes when I see these trivializing... Um, pieces you know in blogs or in you know wherever uh, you know people typing their different dogs and you know <laughs> whatever, whatever else there may be it just, it it seems it seems to be such an insult to such a really powerful spirit piece of spiritual technology really you know
2: that i i i i couldn't agree more and and as soon as you say that i think you know it, it we we humans do that to everything don't we a word like well the word christian people turn that into a cartoon Right. And a word like democracy or socialism or capitalism or freedom or whatever, all of these things are so easily turned into reductions and uh, slogans. And uh, they, they have some kind of currency in power, you know, like to me, the Enneagram used at its best is a way of having grace for myself and grace for other people. It's a, it's a way for me to step above just saying he's good. He's bad. She's normal. He's abnormal, whatever. It's a way of nuancing that. Uh, But there's, uh, we've all seen people say, Oh, that's just the way I am. And then it becomes their excuse, sort of their get out of jail free card for being a jerk. Right. And, uh, uh, yeah. So uh, we, we human beings are, there's nothing foolproof. <laughs> we That's can right. make a mess out of anything.
1: Yeah. Well, you were talking about these 52 modules in the brain, and I've done a lot of that reading too. the uh, you know, a lot of the work, particularly as I was introduced to it through the topic of trauma. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and I think what, what I, and again, our listeners will roll their eyes cause I say this so often, but It's important to keep in mind, these are low-resolution
2: pictures. That's a great way to say it. I love Uh,
1: that. And they are a beginning point of conversation, I think, that a person can have between themselves and the mystery of their own lives.
2: Yes. Yes.
1: And of the mystery of who God is uh, in the world. And um, if if the Enneagram can serve as a portal way into a deeper conversation um, about who we are— and uh, why we are and how we can show up for life in better, healthier, um, emotionally wiser ways. I mean, that thrills me, you know, but, you know, I uh, would like to to see the level of intellectual engagement with the Enneagram as it, as it now stands on the internet to get a little,
2: a little higher. (laughs) Well, you are trying to, to remedy that one podcast at a time. Right.
1: With one guest like you at a time, Brian, no question about it. So you discovered you were a four. Um, and what I'm curious to know is, well, so what, what have you done with it? What, how has that worked its way? If it has into your, self-understanding your spirituality your daily practice the way you see the world like um or yeah how has it affected you
2: in your life you know uh it's helped me understand ways that i sabotage myself like it, it, um i had this saying um in my years as a pastor uh that I don't know where it came from. It's just sort of an intuitive saying. And and here's what it was. You know, when you're a pastor, as you know, you get a lot of criticism. Anything oh, you man. do, you oh, get yeah. criticized by somebody for virtually. And uh, and my first reaction whenever somebody criticized me was to say they were right. Because mm. the, the self-scrutinizing part of me, I could always see. I, I, I would think to myself, you think that's bad? I'm way worse than that. You know, uh, it, there there was this self-critical part of me. Um, and the term I use for it is I would sell the store. <laughs> somebody, oh. somebody wanted to return a product and I would sell the store. And I was so hard on myself. And I had this very emotional experience uh, one day. Uh, uh, I can't even remember what, I, I guess this would have been in the 90s. And I'm sure a lot of people are like this, but, you know, uh, over the years, I I gain weight and then I've got to go on a diet and exercise and get it back down to some acceptable levels and then it sneaks back up. So I was in one of those periods where I was jogging and trying to, uh, you know, get my weight down and uh, I was jogging around a river, uh, a lake, and I always listened to, you remember cassette tapes? (laughs) Vaguely. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, they're amazing technology. And remember the Walkman? So I had a Walkman with little ear headphones and I'm running around this lake. And I found that if I listened to motivational tapes, um, it just kept my mind off how much my lungs hated it when I ran and how much my legs hated it when I ran, but especially my lungs. And so I'm listening to some tape and the guy on the tape. Sometimes I listen to theology, but this was just some motivational speaker. And he quoted uh, a a quote. You know how motivational speakers like to quote famous people. So he quoted Abraham Lincoln. And Abraham Lincoln said something like this. I've tried to conduct myself while in office in such a way so that when I leave this office, though I've lost every other friend on earth, I will still have a friend down inside of me. Hmm. And when that little line friend down inside of me Mm. when it came to my consciousness in i i stopped running i bent over i had my hands on my knees and i started to cry i i had like snot pouring out of my nose i i was scared like am i having is is this what a nervous breakdown feels like like i was really scared Um, but something erupted out of me and so I, i walked another lap around this lake and i remember the conversation was going on in my brain, I do not have a friend down inside of me. Mm. Um, I, I I am always uh, feeling something is wrong with me. I'm always focused on my flaws. Um, uh, and, and if I don't learn, I, you know, a lot of people say they're way, way nicer to themselves than they are to anybody else. I just, I realize I am way nicer to everybody else than I am to myself. Amen. and i I just remember thinking, I'm not going to survive if I don't know how to become a friend to myself. and And I would say the idea, first, that sort of diagnosis that fours tend to be like that, this constant sense there's something wrong with me, part of it. That helped me and gave me sort of uh, it, it, that that diagnosis is validating. But then it gave me permission to say, "Oh, so many of the things that I, I'm ready to say are wrong with me are side effects of my sensitivity." Hmm. And uh, in fact, I was just talking to a friend. You you might know uh, Reba Riley, who uh, who's Mm -hmm. an author, really uh, nice, wonderful person. And uh, she just this morning said to me, uh, "Her that she said it's hard to be sensitive." Uh, it's your superpower and it's your kryptonite (laughs) and and i think that's maybe the greatest thing that uh, you know this understanding of force has done for me it's helped me understand that my superpower is my kryptonite and that that sensitivity is gift but it also is a it's like a wound it's like a vulnerability yeah
1: well, and I think, isn't it, that kind of the, the magic sauce of the four is, in a way, um, the uh, the wound is the gift that we bring to the world, but it has, yeah. to, be, it, it has to be managed so carefully. Oh, man. Um, because, uh, you know, I, uh, I can think of, um, as you know, a long list of fours who self-destructed. Um, yes because the wound overtook them and yes. now rather than it producing generative creative beautiful things it literally consumed them from the inside out that that wound of um abandonment of loss um you know the fours and the fives it was interesting we we're talking with some the other day you know um four and five is at the bottom of the Enneagram and there's a a big gap between them. It's the biggest gap between two numbers on the Enneagram, right? Yeah. And we talk about that space between them as the abyss. Mm. So it's interesting, fours and fives are always looking over the lip into the abyss.
2: Wow. Yes, 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 yes. So,
1: like, you you ever met a five who's like, I mean, I hate to say it. Um, here's a terrible example of a, of a, this is a five who's so unhealthy, it may not even be helpful, right? But the Unabomber, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. The, you yeah. know, looking down into the abyss, uh, Kurt, Cobain, Kurt Cobain, Sylvia Plath, um, yeah. all these people who, who, and they can become... Nietzschean even you know that kind of like they're they're into reading Nietzsche at 19 and 29 and 39 and they're always looking into the into the what my wife calls the tunnel at the end of the light
2: (laughs) (laughs) oh man I'll remember that line oh my goodness she's always like
1: but fours and fives man they can always see the tunnel at the end of the light yes Yes, because they are at the bottom of the Enneagram and they're looking down into the abyss, and they're the only two numbers that do that, mm. that look into the abyss like that. And so, if they don't, you know, protect the wound, keep it clean, uh, you know, and and make sure that it's not consuming them, um, you know, if they don't do that, they're 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 bound for trouble. They are too they are too sensitive for this world.
2: I. When I was a senior in college and a fresh, a senior in high school and a freshman in college that year, maybe eighteen months, um, I had my first time, my, my first period of depression that scared me, that felt like more than a mood, and and I remember feeling, you know, I mean, at, at seventeen or eighteen, you're 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 just figuring out that you're alive you know but i remember thinking i i'm pretty smart i've got some talent i've got some skill but i could totally go off the rails i could totally consume myself you know i, I remember feeling that and i'm curious because you do so much of this work so, uh, help me understand how that happens, like, how do you see that happen for fours? Because this is so much of your, you know, your Mm. professional life now.
1: Yeah. Well, I definitely think that fours are more susceptible to to depression than lots of other numbers. I mean, you know, if you, any number can fall into a depression, right? Um, But I think fours um, have a particular Vulnerability uh, toward it. I went through a very bad depression in my senior year in college that revisited me again when I was 27, um, which was also the year that uh, I had my first attempt at sobriety, um, and uh, which, of course, is another conversation we could have about fours and addictions. Um, and uh, um, I think it's that. Four's, the world is just too much with them, you know? Um, yeah. And there is, when you are carrying around this secret belief that there is something unredeemably deficient about who you are and that you really can't share the depths of it with another person, um, mm-hmm. what else can you feel except a sense of, Des- what I would call, what I would say sometimes, uh, you know, I've asked a four before, are you feeling, is what you're feeling depression or desolation?
2: Mm, mm. Um,
1: you know, because sometimes, you know, it's, yeah, it's a clinically diagnosable depression, right? But a lot of times I just meet fours who are in a space of desolation, you know, they're, mm. they're feeling desolate and they're feeling so misunderstood by themselves and by other people. And, um, So, yeah, I mean, it's a it's a complicated type Um, and um, and sometimes with fours, they become addicted to their suffering and their depression. I mean, it's there's a sweetness to it almost. Yeah. Um, Like, who would I be without this orientation to the world? You know, this is my my unique contribution is my darkness or something, you know. Um, Yeah, yeah and so trying to talk a four uh into the idea that everybody else suffers like like it's like you know you know i'm a big fan of uh we haven't spoken about this much but in the last 10 years i've spent a tremendous amount of time studying tibetan buddhism and you know the buddhists are onto something when they say you know uh life is suffering and that that nobody feels at home here and unfortunately fours feel that they're the only people who don't feel at home here
2: yes yes Yeah. You know, uh, it's funny as you say that I'm remembering a friend of mine who this is long before I'd ever heard of Enneagram. uh, But looking back, I think uh, he must have been a four. And I remember the image came to me almost like a vision. I said, you have this huge radar dish that is your sensitivity and if you aim that radar dish out at other people, you are like an empath. You get them. You you see into their soul. You feel what they feel. If you aim it out into the universe, you're like this cosmic person. I said, but I feel like your your radar dish fell off of its you know controller and is aimed inward, and you're getting this feedback loop of your sensitive to your sensitivity, and and you're you're it's just sucking you in, you know. And uh, I I suppose that's this balance that that's what it feels to me. Part of the challenge of managing sensitivity is to be sensitive to yourself, your inner life. That that's part of our quest for authenticity and self-knowledge and so on. But there's also some ability to turn that outward and and use it as compassion for other people. And it, it might be one of the ways that that in Buddhist thought. Uh, becoming a philosopher in the sense that you now are not only interested in your own personal suffering, but you're interested in the dynamics of suffering as a phenomenon in the world. You know, and even that is a, is a a way of getting out of the uh, <laughs> the at the end of the light.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's true. I think I think it's both uh, a comfort and an affront to a four when they realize they're just another bozo on the bus.
2: Yes you yes. know,
1: that everybody, uh, you know, everybody is a recovering child. Yes. Um, yes. that, you know, um, everybody carries their own abandonment, their own loss. And fours want to say, yeah, but mine is a little bit more infl. Mine is, th- you know, it's a little bit more twisted. It's a little darker. It's like, and it's like, yes. sorry, sorry, pal. You, you don't get to, you don't get to don't, <laughs> don't please don't flatter yourself, you know, uh, just, you know, uh, be willing to get on the bus and realize we're all suffering and how can i i think this is what a healthy four can do which is how can i move into the world with this empathic kind of intuition um, that i might alleviate suffering in the world you know Um, I remember recently, uh, listening to a person about who, a person who I'm sure you have mixed feelings about, I have mixed feelings about, but it was, I was listening to a, uh, an interview that someone was having with Jordan Peterson and in the interview, uh, and you know, he can get very overwrought and periodically he says something brilliant. And then he says something so far off the rails, you don't, you want to jump out a window. You know what I mean? Like you just don't know what to make of him. Um, and, uh, Uh, and and he has a lot of interesting four or five ish qualities you know um at the same time but at any rate he said you know kids if you don't know what you want to do with your lives and you're living at home and you're 23 years old he says i'll tell you what you can do go alleviate some suffering there's plenty of it out there you'll always have something to do (laughs) 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 and i thought well that i can agree with right go out and alleviate some suffering and i think that's what when a four can go and access the healthy side of two and become more attuned to the feelings of others and less obsessed with their own, that yeah. th- that's a good sign in a life of a four.
2: That's right. That's right. You know, as you were saying that, I thought it, part of what was happening to me at that moment on the, uh, <laughs> on the jogging trail, I think I was, I, I'd been living under this, you know, it had all kinds of theological uh, dimensions, like I'm a Christian, I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. I'm just here to be concerned about others. I don't need to be concerned about myself. Um, it was almost as if I was fighting that so hard. And when I realized, you know what, I'm kind of a mess. Uh, I'm, but it, it had the effect of me as saying, I'm just a human being. And, and you know, that's where this... Maybe that's we come to it from a lot of different ways, but it's simultaneously knowing our own uniqueness and value, but also realizing, you know what? I'm just a human being. Yes. There there are billions of us on this planet and I'm just one of them. Uh, Yeah. uh, And, and, uh, you know, in my movie, I'm always on this. I'm always on screen. So I think I'm the star. But no, no. On a bigger movie. I'm just one of billions and, and everybody thinks they're the star of their own movie. But can we see that? Well, I, well, I like how they say it, um, you know, in, in the men's work that Richard Rohr does, life is not about me. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's bigger things going on here. And and there's, that, that's not a way of diminishing our value, it, but I think it's a way uh, of holding a, a, a important dynamic tension.
1: Yeah. So back to your experience on the running trail, Do you feel like now at this point in your life as a four that you have found that friend down inside of you?
2: I do. I do. Yeah. I mean, I, I, the way I'd say it is I have other problems I'm dealing with now, (laughs) you know, that doesn't feel like the the biggest one. It feels like that is dealt with enough that I'm, that there are other things I'm, I'm, you know, that are occupying my attention, but I, I think uh, I'll just tell you that over those, the following years, uh, several things hit me. Uh, I'll tell you one of them uh, that I imagine there might be four elements to this, but I had never gone to therapy and I had never seen a counselor and I'd never, uh, I'd never even seen a formal spiritual director. The funny thing, I I was a pastor but I'd never had much direct pastoral care. I did have great mentoring and great teachers, but I hadn't ever been the problem who, you know. And I remember the first time I went to a therapist and I and uh, it, and I I had to find somebody who I had no connection with through the church or whatever else because I didn't want a dual relationship. And I remember when I sat in the room with that person, I Uh, He offered me a discount. I said, I don't want a discount, (laughs) which is a big deal for a Scottish guy. Uh, (laughs) I I, I wanted to pay top dollar because I, I partly, I think I had to say I'm worth it. I don't deserve bargain therapy. But part of it was, I don't ever feel I'm with people who don't have another, who, who don't have another agenda for me. I'm their pastor, I'm their husband, I'm their father, I'm their son, I'm their business partner. And I remember having this feeling like I'm paying this guy money to just try to see me as a human being, you know, and um, I, I realized how rare that was. And and I think, I, I just think I spent a lot of years in, in my life never acknowledging that about me that that Mm. it's part of this I'm just another person so I deserve the same care and consideration anybody else does you know I'm not disqualified by whatever this mysterious uh uh insufficiency is about me so anyhow Mm.
1: and how is that I mean when you think about the Enneagram and your family and um your kids how has it helped you there
2: well, again, I, I think the, the, the simplest, most positive thing that uh, helped me have grace of course, you know, my daughter, who's the two, of course she takes on too much responsibility. Uh, of course she, uh, you know, uh, of course she's one of the most loving, kind people in the world, but, uh, you know, it, it is always going to take on one more, uh, problem and, and 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 instead of criticizing for that i have to just understand that this is her starting point right hmm. um not that i'd want to criticize but it, it's given me grace or or you know my son who's a nine of course he doesn't feel the same responsibility i feel to solve every problem he that's just not the way he's in the world he's he's got other gifts he he has the ability to create a certain kind of space for people that's undemanding that I'll never have, you know. So seeing each of my kids, uh, it's allowed me to have grace and appreciate their strengths, and uh, and and yeah, and uh, and and I also think um, one of the great gifts the Enneagram has is it deabsolutizes the normalcy of me. <laughs> so yeah, uh, well it, said. It it, it it allows me to say yeah, this is my weird way of living in the world. Uh, this is my weird way of managing all my brain modules. Thank God other people have different ways of doing it, and I'm not normal. Uh, I, I'm not the norm by which anybody else is judged.
1: Yeah. You know, um, just switching gears a little bit, as you were talking, I was thinking about this. So um, uh, I, I was just thinking about, in a funny way, um Back over the arc of your career, you know, you had a number of, um, you know, they were very successful, very influential books. Um, and then, you know, uh, there there came a time when, in the in the public sphere, in which you were very present, you came under a firestorm of criticism, mm-hmm. theological criticism. As you evolved, as you began to share ideas yeah. in the marketplace of ideas. Uh, that were threatening or, um, you know, however we want to put it right um, in yeah. ways I, I could laugh and say in some ways that Brian McLaren was Rob Bell before Rob Bell. Um, <laughs> and, 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 you know, of course Rob's a seven and would responded to that, you know, onslaught of public criticism in his own way. Um, and he, he and I've had fa- had a fascinating conversation about it together once what it was like to be a seven going through uh, the, the meat grinder on the internet and uh, in press. But I'm curious how a four did. How did you navigate that much criticism from the world at large as a four on the Enneagram?
2: So the, the first thing I'd say in is I'm really glad I didn't write my first book until I was 40. Um, Because I think that kind of criticism would have hurt a lot more when I was 25. You know, I, I don't think I would have been able to handle it. I think it would have done psychological damage. Uh, I think it it would have succeeded in scaring me back into my hole. Um, somebody I, I, uh, somebody just wrote a, PhD, a doctoral dissertation on some aspects of my work, and he asked me, you know, my reactions to the dissertation. And I said, I learned a whole lot about myself. I, like he had read everything I'd written and I realized I was saying things much earlier than I realized I was saying. I was just saying them in a covert way. And, and so part of what I realized is my deference to the gatekeepers of my religious community. Like I was, I I was way I was much farther ahead than anybody thought (laughs) I just was scared to say it because I had so much deference to the gatekeepers Mm. um and and I guess part of being a four is I had to be true to myself but yet I wasn't an eight or a seven ready to run recklessly or courageously or uh or you know adventurously out into the unknown uh so I I You know, I I was so covert or I was so subtle or I was so gentle in the way I did it. Now, that might have helped people and there are good things about that. But I think that my foreness made me have to speak my truth, but I didn't do it aggressively or recklessly. I did it very carefully. And I'll tell you what happened when all of that criticism hit. I remember thinking, is this the best they can do? (laughs) <laughs> like i i remember thinking i could criticize my work 10 times more intensely than they've done and i remember i just lost respect for these gatekeepers i thought they really have nothing they they really have nothing why have i I've been so afraid of them so ironically because i've been very careful when the criticism came uh, in some ways it was liberating um because i thought if if this is the best they can do, um, I guess I'm okay. I don't know. I don't know. Does that make sense?
1: Yes, it does. You know, um, just closing in on something, you know, the thing I'm going to take away from this conversation today was that amazing line from Abraham Lincoln. Um, Could you just repeat it for me again?
2: Yeah. Um, I've tried to conduct myself while in office, and this isn't a direct quote, but this is close. I've tried to conduct myself in office so that when I leave it, if I've lost every other friend on earth, I will still have a friend down inside of me.
1: Well, you know, I think that's about as good a blessing to give force, you know, well, to give mm-hmm. any human being. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, Anthony probably tires of me using my phrase, uh, which I'm always throwing around, which is um, the importance of unconditional self-friendship. Yes. And the idea that um, how, how surprised people look when you ask them, are you your own friend? Yes. Uh, it's as though it, it, it's crazy, but it, it, in a world of relationships, you, you, none of us stop to ask the question, am I my own friend? Yes. Uh, and in most instances, when you ask people that question, they don't have an answer. And then probably later on the drive home, they realize the answer is no. Yes. I think that's the vast majority of people would say no. I'm I'm ashamed to say it, but no. And um, uh, what I carry from this conversation, in in those beautiful words of um, of Lincoln, is, you know, uh, I have an ongoing journey, even at 59, uh, of becoming my own friend. Friendship takes uh, genuine friendship takes time between souls and there are some days when i am a better friend to myself than others uh and but for a four to to seek out self-friendship is probably that may actually summarize the journey for the four Mm -hmm. which is you know at the end of my life um that i would have a friend down inside of me um Mm -hmm. And uh, I hope fours allow themselves that, that opportunity and open themselves to that possibility that uh, they might, in fact, um, become their most beautiful advocate. Brian, you have two books coming up. I just want to let people know what they are. You have uh, Faith After Doubt. You just told me you, you just sent your edits in. That comes out in spring 2021 that's right and you have another book do i stay christian that comes out in spring of 2022 you crazy writer producer (laughs) um i'm excited about these books man
2: i am too i uh the faith after doubt uh as a writer you know in some things you struggle and you work really hard. Faith after doubt has just flowed. It's just flowed out of me, and I, yeah, I'm 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 so happy with it. Um, and I'm just about to start. Do I stay Christian? And um, uh, and I feel that question in so many people's hearts. You know, in, including ministers. You know. Oh yeah. Uh, uh, forget, do I stay a minister? Uh, deeper down, do I even stay a Christian? And what does that word even mean? And, you know, so the the complexities of religious belonging are really profound. And I have Jewish friends, you know, every day, Benjamin Netanyahu makes it harder for them to stay Jewish because they realize that the word means something so different when it becomes uh, you know, a political thing as opposed to a spiritual thing. And I have Muslim friends who are struggling with it. And frankly, I have atheist friends who realize that their atheist identity has all kinds of complexities. So this is a, you know, it's a human problem across religious traditions. But I think the Christian religion as the religion with the most people, the most money, the most weapons uh, in the world, it is a particularly fraught identity these days. So...
1: Mm. Well, I can't wait to read them, brother.
2: Thank you, my friend. Always good is... to uh, talk to you. And, well, and thanks for the good work you're doing in helping people uh, try to understand themselves and understand their neighbor. That's a good step.
1: Well, it's it feels like a good thing to get out of bed for every morning. So, Brian, we always close the show with the words of the great Oscar Wilde. Be yourself. Everybody else is already taken. Peace to you, brother. Great to see you. Thank you.
2: Thank you.